This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Long, and I am here again with Greg Stevens, the Satanist. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, thanks for coming on again. So this is the third time you've been on my show. We did a two-parter several months ago covering the seven tenets of the Satanic Temple and uh, kind of what Satanism, what the Satanic Temple is all about. If this is your first encounter with Greg on my show, I definitely recommend that you go back and listen to those other episodes. It will kind of catch you up to what the Satanic Temple is, the seven tenets, and uh, it'll be good groundwork. For this episode, we are going to be taking questions from my audience because Still after that episode, people still had lots of questions, especially my from my Christian audience. My audience is mostly Christian and kind of post-evangelical deconstructing Christians. A lot of them had questions. So hopefully in this episode, Greg will be able to answer some of those questions. So, <laughs> Well, I hope so. I'm looking forward to hearing them for the first time. It's going to be exciting. Yeah, for sure. So just before we get started here, how about if you share kind of what your position is within the Satanic Temple? All right. So I am on the National Council. And so I help to manage and sort of oversee a lot of the national initiatives and um, help to sort of coordinate stuff between different chapters because we do have local chapters in many of the different states as well as having a national organization that has different projects that we're working on. Fantastic. And and those projects are mostly political in nature, defending the division between state and religion, defending religious freedom and freedom of speech and that kind of stuff, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of the stuff that if if people have heard of the Satanic Temple sort of glancingly through the news, it's probably because of one of our lawsuits, right? And uh, <laughs> yes, our, our sort of method is to fight for separation of church and state. Like we really believe that government should be secular, but we sort of take a different approach from groups like the, let's say the ACLU, that when someone in, I don't know, Oklahoma decides that they want to put a a big old statue of the Ten Commandments on the city hall steps, they are going to sue to have it taken down. We take a different approach. We figure, well, you can do what you want, but since the government constitutionally can't show a preference for one religion over the other, if you're going to have your statue of the Ten Commandments, then you need to allow us to have our statue of Baphomet, the goat-headed demon, you know, sitting right there next to it. And so we will <laughs> petition to have our statue, and we do have the actual statue, by the way. I have a miniature of that statue sitting on my uh, dresser right now. Excellent. Yes. And so, <laughs> yeah, I so, got it. I got it for my boyfriend for for Christmas. It's nice because it's a slightly different tactic, and it is a little disconcerting sometimes to the Christians because when they like to t- bring out arguments about uh, religious freedom, for example, on the freedom of religious expression, they tend it tends to not occur to them that like freedom of religious expression applies to you know people that aren't Christian. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And and also like Satanism is kind of the ultimate test of religious freedom. If someone espouses religious freedom but isn't willing to give it to a group of Satanists, no matter how objectionable they may find them, they aren't actually for religious freedom, period, right? Right. And and that's something that, you know, we've we've been asked since we uh, since we do explicitly say that, you know, the end game, as it were, the goal is uh, uh, what we would like to see is a secular public society. A lot of people ask, well, you know, why why then aren't you going against that by having a satanic religious symbol up there? Why not petition to have, you know, a statue of the Magna Carta or something that's more neutral? And we feel that it would simply not be as strong of a statement of pluralism and as strong of a test of that idea of religious freedom to have something that is, you know, sort of tepid and unobjectionable and non-religious next to a strong Christian statement to really test the idea 
that um, we're going to have a tolerant pluralistic society, you need to push the envelope a little more and you need to be able to ensure that it's not just Christians and, oh, those sort of semi-neutral atheists that aren't a challenge to anybody or acceptable. You have to really show the, a strong counterstatement. And that even religions that one group might find objectionable for whatever reason are also available in the public sphere. Right. So this is, this is, I think, part of the paradox of something like the Satanic Temple, where on the one hand, you are fighting for a more secularized society. On the other hand, you do consider yourself truly and genuinely religious as a group. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, it is. So it is, it is a religion. And, you know, I mean, it's not to, to me, that's not a paradox because we just simply feel that uh, religion can and should be a private matter. And we have no, we're not, we're certainly Absolutely. not trying to, yeah, we're certainly not trying to scrub the world clean of religion. We are a religion. We just feel that the government should be neutral in such matters. Yeah. So this is a really important point because I think we here in Western culture, we have this really unhealthy dichotomy between spiritual and material when I think you can be a very spiritual materialist. You know, we assume that spiritual implies supernatural, and that isn't necessarily true. We assume that religion means theism, and that also is not necessarily true. And so there can be non-theistic religion. There can be atheistic spirituality. There can be non-superstitious spirituality. Part of what I love about the Satanic Temple is that it's kind of breaking down those assumptions within our culture. Yeah, I think that the, one of the really important messages, you know, apart from the political and fighting for justice that we do and fighting for a separation of churches and church and state, part of the message that at least to me is important as a member of the Satanic Temple and as a Satanist is to sort of just make people aware of the fact, you know what, there are options out there other than disavowing yourself of religion entirely or be or being a supernaturalist. I, exactly. I, like the term, I like the term supernaturalist because uh, to me, I mean, I am, I'm not just an atheist, and this is me personally, I'm not, this is not me speaking for the Satanic Temple as a whole, but I personally am um, not a supernaturalist. It's not just that I don't believe in God, it's that I don't believe in souls, I don't believe in spirits, I don't believe in luck, I don't believe in fate, I don't believe in, you know, I, I really am sort of heavily, heavily uh, geared towards viewing things from a, a materialist, not in the material girl sense, but in the philosophical sense, um, <laughs> in a materialist uh, perspective. And so uh, not all members of the Satanic Temple are, but I am. And as someone who's an anti-supernaturalist, I think that a lot of people are surprised that I would claim the label or the identity of, of a religion for myself. But, you know, that is that is kind of a bias we have in our culture. It's also, it's also just historical, I think, right? I mean, it, it is fair to say that over the broad course of human history, uh, there has been this entanglement, right? Religion has, I mean, I try to, uh, there, there are some atheists that are really anti-religion, but I, I try to give it a little bit of a break, you know, because when you think about it, it's been doing a lot of work. Religion in over human history, it's been, it's been asked over the course of human history to be essentially politics, yes. physics, yes. morality, you know, all these things rolled into one. And, you know, so I, 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 I tend to be a little bit forgiving if early on they got some of that wrong, right? And so yes. as, we, as we've disentangled these things and we've said, hey, you know, maybe now we can have you know, physics and the natural sciences talk about the way the universe functions. And we can have a government that isn't, you know, where uh, where we don't have, you know, crimes being the same thing as sins. Um, you know, we can disentangle these things a little bit. But that doesn't mean that the idea of having a moral framework that's informed by a narrative and a, and a history of, symbol, of symbols and characters and storylines that belong to a culture and that are shared between a people that we can draw on for inspiration and also for personal moral direction. All of these things are qualities of religion that I think 
are valuable and um, absolutely, and, and that's something that you can have. And part of our message is that you can have it, you know, quite independent of whether you believe in souls or gods or demons or unicorns or any of that stuff. Absolutely. You know, I do have a lot of respect for, you know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as they're often called, you know, the the new atheists, Sam Harris, Dawkins, so on. I really hate some of their stuff. I really love a lot of their stuff. One way in which I think they did a huge disservice to humanity is by stigmatizing the very label of religion. Because I I sometimes wonder if that blocks the progress of religion. You know, I don't believe, and maybe this is me just being fatalistic, but I don't really think that our world will ever be rid of religion, in part because there are people like me in it for whom religious identity is so deep and so profound. You might as well ask me to stop being gay or something. <laughs> you know, that's the, way it, that's the way it feels to me. But you can come to me and after a long period of anguish, probably after years, you can get me to say, well, now I'm an open or now I'm a hopeful materialist. Now I'm going to say I can't go beyond the magisterium of science, but I can still maybe hope for something beyond it. But there's a difference between what I hope and what I know. And I can't say that there's anything beyond what I know to be true, which is revealed through science. So I'm I'm ultimately a materialist, but I can still have my symbols, which are so deep in my blood and so much a part of me. And to say, here are all the riches of science, but in order to accept these riches, you have to get rid of your beloved symbol. That is a deal that most people just can't make. And right. I I really feel, you know, I am very dedicated to, to furthering in my own way these enlightenment values and to demystifying the world as coming from someone who calls myself a mystic to I'm, I'm dedicated to bringing science literacy to the world and thinking critically and allowing people to still have their symbol because I think yeah. that because I think that's the only way personally just speaking for myself I think that's the only way religion will move forward and that's that's just me I like what you say about uh um, religion moving forward too because I think that some people are some people you know conservative religious people are very um, entrained in the idea that uh, you know religion has to be this static thing but a lot of the progressive religious people that I know do view theology and religion as something that is always evolving and that is we're always learning about. And my it's friend progressive, yeah. It is. And and so my, my friend uh Pastor Gregory Stevens, who I met because we happen to have the same name. That's a that's, <laughs> it's, it's like it's like like doppelgangers. There's like Christian pastor yeah. Greg Stevens and then there's like satanic temple greg stevens <laughs> yeah and we absolutely like have said we need to leverage this and make a book or something like you know the christian greg stevens and the satanic yeah totally or you could totally <laughs> do a podcast together absolutely absolutely um <laughs> the only reason i bring him up is because in one conversation i had with him he made a point of saying that he wished that more people could view religion and even christianity in particular as being more like the sciences or we probably say as in in as much as we have had over history theories about the nature of god and let's admit that past you know generations of humanity could be wrong let's imagine that we don't need to give up the idea of God just because what was written in a 2,000-year-old book isn't in line with what we feel is true in our heart. Maybe we just say the way the scientists say that theory was wrong. Exactly. And we, to, and we need to try to discover what the correct theory is about the nature of God and the nature of love and the nature of what it means to be a good Christian. So that's his attitude, which I admire. I mean, I'm still not a Christian, but I admire him taking that approach 
to the doorstep of Christianity, you know. Absolutely. All right. So we can talk all night long about this stuff, but we should get to questions. Okay. So here is a question from Peace Joy Coffee on Twitter. And Peace Joy Coffee asks, <laughs> Peace Joy Coffee asks, of all the things to worship or even not worship at all, why Satan? Is this the same Satan as defined in the Bible? Okay, this is the, really the only question like this because, you know, just to kind of get basic stuff out of the way first. The why Satan question, you know, comes up, comes up every time. And, you know, I guess it's something that I understand why it's difficult for someone who, for whom that kind of, you know, narrative or symbolism doesn't really doesn't really connect. It's difficult to understand why someone would be drawn to it. But I guess it is a matter of being drawn to a particular narrative of the outsider, the narrative of, you know, standing up against tyranny, and the, and the narrative of, you know, all of these complex characteristics. And when you look at you know, the character Satan from sort of the flip side point of view. And there's there's sort of a history in literature of doing this too, right? The romantic period of writing has a history of sort of looking at Satan as the as the, the tragic hero, right? Who was just trying to stand up against stand up against, you know, authority that he thought of as being um, you know, arbitrary and oppressive trying to say, I'm not going to bow down, I'm going to think for myself, and then being punished for it. And for people who are drawn to that kind of symbolism, and especially the fact that it does have a kind of power as being a little dark or a little antagonistic, and as being something that represents a certain kind of outsider strength, it can be appealing and it can present... Like I said, I keep using the term narrative, right? It, it presents a set of symbols that are deeply, deeply entrenched in our society. So you've heard me, you know, mention the term narrative. And I think that, you know, that's one of the powerful things that a religion can provide. And in the same way that some people come to me and say, well, if you believe in, you know, standing up for yourself and not bowing down to authority and all of these things, can't you do that? without attaching it to this care, fictional character, Satan. And I say, well, I suppose, but couldn't a Christian be nice and love thy neighbor and all these things without attaching it to the <laughs> fictional character, Jesus? Right, right. And of course they could, maybe, but, but the fact is that whether it's because of how they're raised or just the way that they feel about the stories that are in the scriptures, for whatever reason, they draw inspiration from it and they draw a kind of identification with it. And the same is true, you know, I, I couldn't sort of just throw away the narratives or the, or the characters or the symbology of Satanism, you know, and have it still be that same rich interplay of personal inspirations and personal values. It just, it wouldn't be the same any more than, you know, a Christian who was, you know, not tying things back to Jesus and the Bible, but just has this sort of checklist that, all right, be good to your neighbors and, you know, try not to, I don't know, covet things, whatever the Christians think. Anyway, and, um, <laughs> you know, it's uh, so it, it really has to do with with that kind of connection. And it's it's it, like I said, I understand why it's difficult for someone who just doesn't doesn't feel the pull of that particular narrative. But I just would appeal to, you know, thinking in terms of that analogy that I gave. Right. It's like. People find storylines that are meaningful to them. And honestly, if you read about and understand the fictional character Satan as a Satanist sees him, as this sort of inspirational, hey, you know, he wanted to help those poor two people trapped in that garden by saying, you know what, have some knowledge, get out there, explore the world, be your own person. And that was really a, a generous thing to do. 
And if you don't see that as like, oh, right, that's a cool way of looking at it. Yeah, like that really, that, that, that story now speaks to me when I look at it from the snake's point of view. And if you don't have that reaction, then that's cool, man. Don't be a Satanist then. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but for me, that's something that even back to when I was a teenager and I was fascinated by, you know, all of the sort of postmodern counter narratives, you know, the story of Grendel, which is Beowulf told from the monster's point of view. And I was always fascinated, always fascinated by the counter narrative. And or so Wicked when I, by uh, Gregory Maguire about the exactly. Wicked Witch of the West. Yeah. Well, I'm old enough that that wasn't around when I was in high school. But yes, exactly that. <laughs> exactly that. And so all of these sorts of things do have kind of a literary history. And for some people, it can be very powerful. Right. And um, especially if you grew up feeling like an outsider and for myself and I was a little goth boy and I was gay and I was dealing with all these things. And so there was a part of me that always did have that there was an appeal you know, yeah. to having that kind of perspective. And I think that's true a lot of, I mean, we've um, spoken publicly in, in interviews, the spokespeople for the Satanic Temple have about how, yeah, we absolutely draw, we have a very high contingency of LGBT and queer identified people and a high contingency of people who, because we are in some ways a, a narrative that resonates with the outsider. Exactly. You know, I was just recently being interviewed on a podcast called The Pastor with No Answers, and which is kind of a progressive podcast. And he brought up the fact that I am a member of the Satanic Temple, and I take it really seriously, and I really love it. And uh, at first, he thought it was a joke. <laughs> at first, he thought I was just kidding. I was like, no, I, I, I really am. And uh, he asked me to explain it some. And I said, well, you know, for me, if you grow up in the South, gay, feeling very much like an outsider, the Garden of Eden will take on a completely different meaning. The Eden of the church will take on a totally different meaning. And suddenly, God, who is supposed to be the benevolent God, ends up being this horrific gaslighting God to LGBT people. And the Garden of Eden, the church, where things are supposed to be so wonderful and so beautiful, it turns into a nightmare. And then the snake comes along and offers liberation. Now, if you are someone who's part of a of the majority within the church, you might identify more with the garden, and it might feel more okay. But for someone from my perspective, it is a completely different story. I have a very, very different view of the garden. That's kind of how I was able to frame it for him. And also, so in this question that Peace Joy Coffee asked, I think the operative word here is worship. So you don't worship Satan, but you honor or revere the symbol of Satan. And that's very different. Is that would you? Is that the way to put that? Yeah, I mean, so uh, words, 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 right? Yes. Um, <laughs> the term worship is often used in religious contexts, especially for this kind of adoration or putting on a pedestal. I don't think that's necessarily the only way to understand the term. If you, if that is how you understand the term, then we don't worship Satan. We don't really worship anything. If that's how you understand that word, um, you know, it's the the term worship comes from a medieval word that is that, and I'm not going to try to mispronounce it, but it is essentially a worth shape giving shape to worth. What is it that you find of worth and how do you how do you give shape to that in the way that you live your life? And if that's an understanding of what worship is, then when we put on one of our political protests, then that is how we worship. And when we bring one of our lawsuits, that is how we worship. And when we try to do any kind of good act in the world, that is a form of worship. And we're not the only ones, I mean, just so you know, the American Baptists, there, there are other there, there are Christ, uh, branches of Christianity that also take this very do good in the world as your act of worship as well. I would say if that's your understanding of what worship is, then that's the best way to understand how a Satanist worships as well, because as a non-supernaturalist, uh, my worship is entirely embedded in the relationship between myself and the material world around me and how I can make it the best world that it can be. 
you know, one of the things that I really love about Satanism is that it has a concern first and foremost for the material world, at least the way I understand it, is it's concerned not with the next world, not with the next life, not with any of that, but with the here and now, the material realm, uh, at least a great deal of Satanism that I've encountered. And I find that form of engagement of we're concerned about the well-being of material beings right now, not about their eternal salvation, but are they well? Are they fed? Are they protected? The co- it is concerned first and foremost with the material world. And I find that really empowering and beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, and you see that in the seven tenets, you know, the topic of our our previous uh, interviews, you know, and the fact that we focus on, you know, uh, I mean, everything from the fact that we focus on the importance of justice and the fact that we focus on the importance of having, you know, beliefs conform to the best evidence available. These are all things that are different expressions of the same kind of idea that our morality is situated. It is situated in a context of a material world that we have a relationship with and that that is the primary thing that we have to foster because, you know, that's literally everything, right? If we're not, if we're not gonna have an afterlife, if we're not going to have, you know, some sort of other, you know, being ported up to some spirit plane, then this situated life in this material world is what there is. And it is therefore what our morality should be focused on. Absolutely. All right. So here's a question from Donald. He asks, I have a question about how their protest often involves the mocking or degrading of Christian symbols. So I I asked Donald about this, and I think he is referring to the Lisa Ling episode about the satanic temple which i did not see but he says that the temple members were pouring blood over an image of mary or something something like that something appropriately satanic um i have a question about how their protest often involves the mocking or degrading of christian symbols unlike most christians i by and large agree with what they are they the temple are trying to do but at the same time using images that i view as sacred hurts me more than it offends me I understand that those images have been used to oppress people, yet there are Christians who see them as images of liberation. So I guess at the end of it, I see it as counterproductive to desecrate an image of a poor teenage pregnant mother out of wedlock who has essentially become the female face of God. Yeah, no, that's an interesting question. I'm, I um, don't think I can speak to a specific protest that's being referred to here because off the top of my head, I'm just not recalling, I'm not familiar with that specific one. So I'm going to have to, unfortunately, at least speak generally to the idea of using inversions of or caricatures of or somehow mocking, you know, traditional Christian symbols in as a, as a method of protest. And so w- what I'm going to say about that is that, you know, I can understand that you, that y- you know that in your heart these symbols that you revere mean something different than the meaning that's attached to it in the public sphere where it has been used to oppress people. And you know that the meaning of this symbol to you may be very inclusive and may be very loving, even though to some, you know, I don't know, young gay kid growing up in the Deep South, it's associated with, you know, verbal or physical abuse. And it's, it's, it's in a way... It feels like an attack on something that you, from your perspective, hold sacred when the symbol is used in that way. And I do get that. I really do. But I would hope that you also, you know, and even in in the way you phrase the question, you are aware that there is this larger cultural context. You're aware that there's kind of a tension between the symbol and the framework of the religion as you experience it, as you want to live it, and some of the negative ways in which other people have experienced it. And I guess I would hope that when you see the symbols used in this way, you can look at it from maybe almost an anthropological perspective and say, I understand 
what that's referring to. And it doesn't happen to be the symbol that's in my heart. It is this other symbol, which I also disagree with the way it's been used. And I know that that's what they're objecting to. It's similar to, I think, in, in a lot of times when there are people who make generalizations um, in the public sphere. And, you know, this is something that's been commented on when, you know, anytime, anytime there is a, a slight overgeneralization uh, about, you know, even, even, even just something as simple as men act like this. And then there's always the people like, well, I'm a man and I don't act like this. But, you know, the, the, the more compassionate way to respond is not to be offended as the man who doesn't act like this, but to sit, to sit back and say, you know what? I'm aware of the men that do act like this. I know that's who they're talking to. They're not talking to me, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say, yeah, you know, I understand the context, and in the context, you mean it. I agree with you, and that's how I would, I guess, maybe encourage you to view if you if you see the use of some of these symbols, and you know that in your heart it's something that doesn't mean the same thing that we, as a satanic temple, are objecting to or fighting against. You know, I would ask you to understand that when we have, um, you know, because there are times when we can use symbolism of, you know, a person in a in a nun's outfit to represent the oppression of women. And I am sure that, you know, that's, yeah, I mean, of course, there are nuns that are not oppressed because they are in positions within the modern day and they are in power and that's fine, but that's just not the point of that particular protest, right? Right, right. So, you know, I, I think kind of what I'm hearing is that no matter how powerful a symbol may be, our personal takeaway from that symbol is still subjective. And if we're going to have any hope of kind of a collectivist or tolerant society, we're going to have to accept the fact that symbols are open to interpretation, you know, and we're going to have to be okay with the fact that maybe people interpret other symbols differently than we do. Yeah, and I think that I think that the more effective thing, at least for me, the way I try to govern my own self, and I'm not going to try to you know, I'm not going to try to tell people what how, how they should respond to things, especially when it's emotional, right? But what I strive for in myself is to be a little bit mindful of, you know, if my first reaction to some general statement, you know, it's not directed to me, it's a public demonstration, it's a public statement, and if my first reaction is to feel like I'm offended because it's made some kind of generalization about me, but it's wrong or whatever. I do try, not always successful, I am human, but I do try <laughs> to take a step back and just think, you know, in the broader context of our culture, is it a statement sometimes true? And if that's a general perception, is there something that I, can I use my energy more in a more valuable way by working to change that perception or just by working to be a better counterexample rather than simply trying to nitpick away at the point that they're trying to make, which is the cases where the generalization might be true, especially if it's fighting against an injustice, especially if it's trying to, you know, lift people up and make the world a better place. You know, I'm not, I, I'm going to not be the guy who, when someone is out there trying to highlight and shine a light on the fact that, you know, men are self-involved and have a tendency to speak over women. I'm not going to be that guy who says, I don't speak over women because, you know, how is that helping? Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, and, and, and in a religious context, I think the same thing sort of can apply. I mean, it's like sometimes it is a matter of trying to highlight an injustice to put a spotlight on some of the things that religion broadly does. And there's always implicitly a footnote of like, of course, there are religious people who are fighting against it. Of course, there's people who don't participate in that. But let's not let that fact cloud 
the point that we're trying to make about justice. Yeah, it's kind of like the whole Black Lives Matter thing. It's like, yes, of course, of course, all lives matter. Duh. That's <laughs> of course. Very much like that. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so here's a question from Joseph Laycock. Joseph has been a guest on this show multiple times. He is a religious scholar, and he's actually studied the Satanic Temple. He uh, he's he's written several articles about the Satanic Temple, and he's a he's a great guy. He studies new religious movements. His question is: How has the election of Donald Trump affected TST? You mean like emotionally or like practically? <laughs> all of all of the above. All of the above. Yeah. So. I'm going to say I think that one of the ways it has affected us is not really unique to the Satanic Temple. It's the way that it's affected anyone who is fearful of Christian theocracy and anyone who is interested in actually maintaining sort of the enlightenment principles that we feel the country was founded on. It's easy to be fearful when you see so many groups emboldened by the type of mindset or the type of actions and discourse coming from the White House. You know, it's 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 like the, the rhetoric is one thing, but the rhetoric, of course, has led to other things. Even just on the state level, there's been a flurry of new attempts at religious-based you know, laws, whether it's, you know, anti-abortion laws or whether it is religious objection laws and we don't have to serve people or we don't have to, you know, perform or give medical procedures to or all, all these things. Uh, people uh, at the state level have been emboldened to propose all of these new things that are sort of working their way through the system and they don't get a lot of attention because it isn't, you know, a Donald Trump tweet. What's happened is from the top, you know, a lot of the people who really want Christian theocracy now feel that it now's their time, mm. and and that's yes. frightening. That's 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 very frightening. I mean, in in terms of you know a, a practical matter, you know, has it, have there been specific either lawsuits or issues that we've dealt with as a consequence? Thankfully, not yet. But we have, you know, uh, oh, actually, there is, oh, there is one thing that just occurred to me that we've done that's a specific response to something Trump did. Otherwise, it's just been a lot of fear. But there is one thing. So because Trump, and I don't know if it's Trump himself, or but his administration has made it very, very clear that there's going to be absolutely no enforcement. I mean, there was already pretty meager enforcement of if you're a church you can't be political i mean that was already you know tenuous to begin with for a long time but he's super clear that there's going to be no enforcement of that and one of the main reasons that the satanic temple had not from a from a tax exemption standpoint applied to be recognized as a church is i mean it's twofold is one because honestly we don't think churches should be tax exempt but it's also because we know that if our main form of worship is political activism then we don't want to be hypocrites and be like appearing like we're trying to skirt the law so once Trump made it clear that that rule no longer applies, we're like, eh, all right, let's apply for tax. You know, why not? <laughs> why, not? why not? Why not at least be on the same level playing Absolutely. as these other groups? And now that's still working its way through the system. If it actually gets approved, then it's going to be a major, at least symbolic milestone in the sense that we will then officially, at least by one part of the government, the IRS, um, and we will be officially recognized as a church, which is which is pretty major. So we're we're uh, looking forward to seeing how that goes. It's working its way through the system right now. But I can say that that decision that was this year, right? That was that was the direct consequence, right? Of inaction of Trump's. Other than that, luckily, nothing as direct has sort of impacted us, except for the fact that we are like any group, as I said before, like any group that is fearful of Christian theocracy, we're kind of on high alert just because of everything that's going on. 
Yeah. I'm curious if you, and maybe you don't know these numbers at all, but I'm curious if you've noticed spikes in membership since Trump was elected. Like, oh. has has the, has the you know, the rise of Christian theocrats sparked a, a rise in membership for the Satanic Temple? Absolutely. And in fact, there was a broader story, so the Satanic Temple is one thing, but there was a broader story actually a little while ago about someone making the observation that in terms of news stories and, and various, I forget exactly which metrics they use to measure it, but um, that there seems to be a corresponding, you know, spike in interest in or expression of Satanism. I think there was even some like very brief news cycle where there was some some chatter, at least on social media, about like, has Trump been great for Satanists or whatever, which was kind of amusing. <laughs> kind of amusing because only yes. in the most negative possible way is that the case, I suppose, like out of out of complete fear and and irritation at how far things have gone politically, but you know, it is what it is. <laughs> That's hilarious. All right. So one last question before I let you go. And this is a big one. So, you know, if we have to kind of compress it, that's fine. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, Timothy asks, one question I might have would be if Satanists consider themselves purely reactionary to Christianity. How would Satanists look in other cultures? Satan was simply a a quote unquote prosecuting attorney in a Jewish mindset. Would Satanists be Kaliists in Hinduism? Wow, that really is an interesting question. What a great question. Um, because it's absolutely true. All of the narrative and the sort of literature and the storyline and the symbology behind Satanism is absolutely drawn from and evolved from, you know, this sort of Judeo-Christian context. And, you know, there can be interesting historical discussions about the extent to which you know, Satan and slash or the character of Lucifer is actually a meld of a whole bunch of images and even gods from other cultures historically that are interesting conversations to be had uh, because it is, uh, you know, the entire fabric of the mythology of Satan is a lot more than just Hasatan, you know. Um, And so I don't think it's necessarily accurate to say that Satan is just the prosecutor. Even in um, Scripture, in in uh, the New Testament, even in the Old Testament, there is kind of a, you know, even within those texts, there is an evolution of the way this character is referred to. And in some places, it does seem to be the sort of uh, prosecutorial, you know, arm of God, and in some cases seems to be an adversary, but sort of questionable about whether it's an adversary against whom, and, you know, these different sorts of sorts of roles. But then certainly the image, whether you're talking about horns and cloven hooves, or you're talking about the fallen angel with the clipped wings, or any of these images are a cultural mishmash. So in a way, saying that it is rooted in Judeo-Christian tradition, you know, it still has a history even beyond that. But your question about whether the manifestation of the the basic impetus of Satanism, the narrative of the outsider, the thing I started talking about at the very beginning of this, uh, would manifest differently in a culture that had an entirely different symbol system. I mean, my gut level reaction is, of course it would. What would it look like? I can't answer that. Yeah, that's my that's my gut reaction too. I resist using the word archetype because I think though there's so much, you know, pseudoscience bullshit that's wrapped up in the word archetype. But the idea of the outsider, the rebel against totalitarianism and undue authority and arbitrary authority, that is kind of a universal archetype. And I can only imagine that it would surface in numerous different cultures. And so, and so there is a book by someone who had been a member of TST and sort of broke off to do his own thing. And his book is called The Satanic Narratives. He goes by the alias Damien Ball. And um, oh, I think I, I think I have that book actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went on a Kindle satanic buying spree, a, a satanic shopping spree on on Amazon, and I think I have that book somewhere. Excellent. And one of the things that is sort of the core of that book, the core 
kind of way that the book is organized is it takes different, what he refers to as demonized gods, different, what he then says are, can be viewed as different personas or different aspects of Satan as viewed through different characters in different mythologies in slightly mm. different cultures. And then says in all of these cases, this character has been either an antagonist or has been somehow in a negative relationship to other gods in the same culture or mythology. And so in a way represents this outsider figure. And also then he has this what I think is clever way of using each of these demonized gods as a way of inspiring some value or characteristic that a modern Satanist can see as something that they want to view or make use of in themselves, right? So, for example, in Norse mythology, there is Loki. Loki had a terrible relationship with the other Aesir gods. He was always called in trouble, and they sort of barely put up with him. And he is, after all, responsible for the end of the world and all of these things. So he is, you know, he's not a Satan, but he is a demonized god. He is a member of the collection of gods in Norse mythology who has that outsider status. And so so in the book, there's a chapter about Loki, and because of the persona of Loki in Norse mythology, Loki was a trickster. Loki was a liar, but he used things, he used guile to get his way, and he used mischief as a way of making, you know, sort of manipulating the world around him to get what he wanted. And there are times when a Satanist might want to draw inspiration from that character. And then he sort of contrasts that with, there's a chapter on Lucifer, the light bringer, who was the fallen angel who, who uh, you know, was uh, kicked out of heaven for daring to speak up. And that is a speak, and sometimes a modern Satanist can say the aspect of Satan or the specific outsider gods that I want to draw inspiration from when I need strengths to fight back is going to be Lucifer. And so there are these different, and he goes to an entire list. Yeah, um, that's cool. Yeah, and so that's, that is, and it's still, I mean, it's, it's a, I mean, I'll, let's face it, it is a very westernized list, even though it is multicultural in some sense, but it's beginning to look at, I think, a way of understanding that question, you know, what would this outsider God look like in different cultures? So maybe check out mm. that book, that might be an interesting perspective on that question. Say the name of the book one more time. Oh, uh, The Satanic Narratives by Damien Ball. Yeah, and, and the other part of this question was, do do Satanists see themselves in purely in reaction to Christianity? And I don't know. To me, the answer to that question is just really, you know, without sounding like a douche, it, it just sounds... It, the answer to that question is just really obvious, which is, we are in Western culture. These symbols are so deeply ingrained in us of course we're drawing from our culture. Of course we're drawing from kind of the waters we swim in. And maybe you can call it in reaction to or taking inspiration from, but I don't know. The, the answer to that question for me is just super obvious. <laughs> like, Yeah, I think the way that I would answer that question, wait, say the question one more time. Uh, do Satanists consider themselves purely reactionary to Christianity? So I guess my answer to that question would be, do Christians consider themselves purely reactionary to Judaism? And Exactly. Uh, <laughs> yes. Precisely. Thank you. Or Muslims. You know, do Muslims consider themselves purely reactionary to Judaism, you know? Or Jainists or Buddhists purely reactionary to Hinduism? I mean, there was some, but, you know, I mean, anyway, you get what I'm saying. Exactly. I think that, I think the, you know, religions evolve from each other. They borrow heavily from each other and Absolutely. they are reactions to each other. I mean, I mean, Christianity, I mean, the, the, the irony of that question is that Christianity in particular is very much a reaction to Judaism. Right. Um, so I would turn around the question and frame it that way, because I think that that's the best way to understand what that question does and doesn't actually imply or mean, right? You know, it's being a reaction to, all that means is religions all have a cultural kind of genealogy, and to deny that would be silly, but that doesn't necessarily denigrate or devalue any of the things that draw on things that come before it either, right? Yeah, absolutely. All right, 
Well, I think that's about all we have time for, unfortunately. I mean, we could we could probably just drink lots of alcohol and talk this way for days. But um, you absolutely. Know, as- and then the next time, if you if you ever decide that you want me on again, maybe it should involve alcohol. We can maybe it should involve alcohol. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm usually you know sober to a fault, but you know my co-hosts are heavy drinkers, and um, <laughs> they, they they usually ply me with alcohol. Uh, well, but- I'll tell you I'll tell you something. I'll tell you something. If we do do that, you're going to get off very easy because I have almost no tolerance. So I'll be sitting here with my one drink anyway, so you don't really have to feel pressured. (laughs) Very good. All right. Well, Greg, always a pleasure having you on. Where can people find you if they want to check you out? At Greg Stevens on Twitter and my blog is gregstevens.com. So I think those are probably the best jumping off points. Awesome. And where can people find the Satanic Temple? Well, I would suggest that they start by going to the website, thesatanictemple.com, or you can check out, you know, search the Satanic Temple on Facebook. Try to find the official page. There are some unofficial ones out there, but it should be fairly easy to find. It comes up at the top of the search. Yes, and I'm a member of the official discussion group, and so if I'm in there, that's the right one. That's the right one. <laughs> it is, it is It is certified by Stephen's presence. <laughs> 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 All right. It's always wonderful having you on. Thank uh, you very much for having me. Absolutely. Well, that's it for our show. Before we wrap up here, if you've been listening to this show for any amount of time, you are probably aware of my occasional co-host Matt Langston. He is the front man of the band 117. He is the owner of Rock Candy Recordings, which helps out with this podcast quite a bit. Many of our shows are recorded there. Well, Matt has his own show, and it is wonderful. And if you like this one, then you'll probably like his, and it's called 110 Life where he talks about the life of being a musician, a life of the artist, and he interviews lots of other rock musicians, pop musicians, producers, sound engineers, all sorts of people living the creative life, particularly in music, and they have very raw, honest conversations about what it's like to try to survive and make ends meet as musicians. So if you like this one, go check out Eleventy Life. It's a great show. The music is by the Jelly Rocks from the album Bang and Whimper, available on Spotify and iTunes or wherever you get your music. The artwork is by Justin Caleb Bryant and I will see you next week. 